radical secular podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Visit theradicalsecular.com for our full library of episodes and articles at the Radical Secular blog. Sign up for free access to exclusive content and giveaways. Email us with your comments and suggestions, and follow us on social media. Hello, and welcome back to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Christoph Defoe. And I'm Joe Kipinti. Sean is off this week. Today's episode is part three of our ongoing series on self-actualization. To put it another way, we're asking ourselves how one gets and stays reasonably happy or at least reasonably resilient over the course of a life that's inevitably uncomfortable, which will inevitably end. Joe and I are going to talk through the role that self-discipline and self-control play in the saga of human existence. We'll try to determine the extent to which self-discipline is conducive to, or if it obstructs, our path to self-actualization. We'll set the stage for that investigation by honoring the memory of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. We'll likewise address the wave of anti-Semitic bigotry that's flooded the planet in the wake of the violence in Gaza. But first, I want to remind you that if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out theradicalsecular.com, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And if you're into reading, check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. Okay, let's get into t-shirts. Joe, what you got today? Let's do it. Well, (laughs) since we're talking about self-control and self-actualization, I have to bring back the clock dual shirt here. And, you know, I like this one because in the alternative universe, where this comes from, right? They went into an alternative universe where there was a duplicate, except that people's emotions were different. People's Mm. personalities were different in the alternate universe. They were much more passionate, much more violent, much more aggressive in the alternate universe. The humans were, and Spock was as well, but he found a way in the show to still, in that alternate universe, to gain control and do the right thing. Mm. I I think that's what we're going to be talking about today is sort of like, the reason why we want to self-actualize isn't just for ourselves, it's for the community, it's to be good civic people in the world, to do what's right. If we can't control ourselves, then how do we expect to be the people we want to be, right? Have the ethics we want to have. And we'll talk more about this, I'm sure. Yeah, that is really well put. And I love the mirror episode. I think it is one of the best episodes of Star Trek of all time. And that's even including all of the other series and everything else. It really is an outstanding episode. And because it gets right at in, in the most stark terms, right, the duality that we live with within us, right. right, sort of the better angels versus our inner demons, right. And I think that analogy about Spock finding a way to keep that under control is perfect. So today I'm wearing my noose t-shirt that Mm, looks like there's a noose around my neck because it's been a really somber week, Joe, right? I mean, this is, it really, this is, we're going to talk about the massacre, but boy, it was a solemn week. I think Joe Biden did a really fantastic job in terms of addressing that. And I really appreciated that, but uh, yeah, it was really good. And for the first time ever, right, like fully recognized by an American president in that way, I think was really important. But so, yeah, but I, again, feeling very somber. And to be frank, and we talked about a little bit about this before the show, a little bit rattled in terms of my safe space, perhaps, that I have 
with people in terms of race um, yeah, and, that, and that's complicated that. and we yeah. talked about that and we'll talk a little more about that but in any event that is why i'm wearing this one of my most solemn most provocative shirts but i think also one of the most descriptive but uh, we'll talk about more about it let's get into the show we're going to start out the show we're going to start a discussion today by reflecting on the tulsa race massacre the 100th anniversary of which was last week it's a grim reminder of what happens when people allow their passions to overwhelm reason I'll go ahead and read some of the history of those awful couple days right now. Quote, on May 30th, 1921, a young black teenager named Dick Rowland entered an elevator in an office building in Tulsa. At some point after that, the young white elevator operator, Sarah Page, screamed and Rowland fled the scene. The police were called and the next morning they arrested Rowland. By that time, rumors of what supposedly happened on that elevator had circulated through the city's white community. A front page story in the Tulsa Tribune that afternoon falsely reported that police had arrested Roland for sexually assaulting Page. As evening fell, an angry white mob was gathering outside the courthouse demanding the sheriff hand over Roland. The sheriff refused, and his men barricaded the top floor to protect the black teenager. That's to their credit. Uh, over the next several hours, groups of white Tulsans, some of whom were deputized and given weapons by city officials, committed numerous acts of violence against black people, including shooting an unarmed man in a movie theater. As dawn broke on June 1st, thousands of white citizens poured into Tulsa's relatively affluent black neighborhoods. They looted and burned homes and businesses over an area of 35 city blocks. Firefighters who arrived to help put out the fires later testified that rioters had threatened them with guns and forced them to leave. According to a later Red Cross estimate, some 1,256 houses were burned, 215 others were looted but not torched, two newspapers, a school, a library, a hospital, churches, hotels, stores, and many other Black-owned businesses were among the buildings destroyed or damaged by fire. The Oklahoma Bureau of Vital Statistics officially recorded 36 dead. However, historians estimate the death toll to be possibly as high as 300, end quote. Now, Joe, do you want to react to that sobering and yet uh, all too familiar piece of American history? You know, the funny thing about it and, and the horrible thing about it is mm. that uh, I've been a social activist since the mid 80s. You know, all my life I've worked, you know, I campaigned for Jesse Jackson's uh, presidential run at that time. And I had never even heard of this until about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. right? Even though I was completely immersed in this, <laughs> I hadn't heard of it. Right, right. And like 10 years ago, I was like, oh my God, it, it, it was so incredibly erased from history. And then you have to think what else has been erased from history? And we know that this wasn't the only massacre. This was not the only racial massacre in the United States. There was probably a few dozen of these. And it really is very synonymous to me to thinking about the Soviet Union in the 1970s or 80s, when they had that incredible power to be able to silence history. Mm. The same thing has happened in this country, in America. We were supposed to have free press. We're supposed to have freedom. We're supposed to have the ability to be able to understand ourselves in, that, in those ways. And still, this was erased from history. It was a massive atrocity. It was really, I mean, over a thousand homes destroyed, churches, schools, kindergartens, houses, businesses, everything raised to the ground by a white mob. 
300 or so people looks like were killed black Americans at the time. And also this was a successful thriving neighborhood. These white people at the time could not even stand the idea of a successful black neighborhood. And, and, and they just were looking for a reason to raise it. You know, that's, a, then, that, that's such an important point. I just want to just point out what you just said there, Joe. And that is that, yeah, because black people have consistently been barred through this kind of violence from accumulating intergenerational wealth. Right. Anytime any black group of people puts together institutional wealth, what you get are a lot of pissed off white people, like you said, will find any reason to let those black people know where they actually belong in the social order. And so when folks look at this now today, and this is why teaching this history is so fucking important, right? Because if you don't know this, then you look at black people and then someone supplies the lie for you that they're just lazy. That's why that's where they are. Or it's their culture. That's, That's why it's where they are. And it's like, no, it's like, because they, unlike your family, has been barred from accumulating wealth over the generations. So your family over the last 200 years has accumulated wealth, houses, passed them down, and black families have simply have not been able to do that. When you erase history, you really erase the ability to resist. You erase Mm. people's agency. Mm -hmm. it's, It's a lot more than just memory. It's a lot more than just history, because what you're doing, it really is a form of total control, total power. Mm. Uh, I wrote a, a piece on totalitarianism on the blog. And, excellent, uh, excellent piece. Thanks, I appreciate that. But I would suggest mm. people look at that because it really is about power. We have to understand what power is as progressives. And I think we're really sorely lacking in that information, in that understanding. Power is really important to, it's really central to this question. And controlling the discourse, controlling history, all of that is controlling people's minds. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's not like guns and tanks or a repressive state apparatus in that way, the one we can see and it's obvious. It is silent. It is absolutely the kind of power that we have to confront. And that's why this whole push, well said, by the way, that's why this whole push to sweep January 6th under the rug is so fucking dangerous, right? Because we are watching in real time how history is rewritten, right? And that is the movement of a totalitarian, right? That is precisely what the totalitarian does. Because like you said, you control history, you control education, you control minds. And that is way more powerful than any tank, any gun, right? Way more powerful. You don't even have to fight then. I got in a conversation, not a conversation, some idiot on the internet today, um. So apparently, Nichelle Nichols, I think it's some something significant for her right today or or mm-hmm. this week or something like that. Anyway, she another Star Trek reference. We can't go an entire show without a fucking Star Trek reference. At least a few, right? <laughs> at least yeah. a few. At least a few. And we shouldn't. And we shouldn't. Um, yeah. And someone mentioned that, like, you know, the the caption was that how a black woman uh, 
astronaut or something or someone was very inspired by Nichelle Nichols as a kid. And that this is really powerful representation, what, why representation matters, da, 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 da. Right. And of course, you got some guy in the comments, and it's always a guy, always a white guy talking about how, well, the people didn't freak out about the first interracial kiss. So obviously the 60s wasn't racist. And then he goes on to talk about, which is a remarkable thing to say the 60s wasn't racist when that was when the actual civil rights movement took place, right? I mean, that's a, that's a bold statement. But then he goes on to say something along the lines of the rewriting, this is my point, he's talking about how the South, the whole lost cause sort of mm -hmm. argument and dream, right. and then mentioned that the plantation owners lost their workers, and so they were upset. Workers, and that's an important distinction between workers and slaves. That's another sort of linguistic sleight of hand that revisionists like to use, right? They weren't workers. I mean, they were working, I guess, but they were slaves, right? Um, the language that we use to talk about this stuff is important. And you mentioned that before we got on, you talked about how the Tulsa Trib Tribune, the next day, first of all, they're talking about erasing history. They didn't even have as of now or recently, they haven't had the page in their archives that claimed that this black guy had sexually assaulted this woman, which, by the way, he was he was ultimately let go, moved to a different town because there were no charges to bring against him. Yeah. So the entire thing was fabricated. Right. So that's not even in their records, which Amazing. is, I think, really remarkable. And it just goes to show the extent to which folks are willing to sweep this kind of stuff under the rug. You mentioned that the next day the newspaper said three white people died. Like that was the takeaway. Yeah, or two, I think. Two. <laughs> but, you know, that's a great point you made about naming and, and, and language, because I mean, even this was called a, a riot until recently, right? Right. It was a riot. And that actually has implications for insurance claims and all that, but mm -hmm. it all, it, it, it's another way of, of controlling people's thoughts because you're redefining what happened by giving it different names. And we just gotta be, we've just gotta speak truth to power to, about this stuff over and over on an everyday basis. This is happening now, today, in, in subtle and overt ways on the internet, on the media. And every time we see this, we need to really confront it because it really is very insidious. It, it really is a form of mind control. Really and the other thing, is. you know, um, that is a big, huge sort of, historical horrible meme about this incident is this merger of patriarchy and racism about protecting white women against black men. Oh my God. Right? I'm I glad mean, you that, brought that, that up. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's throughout our history, right? It goes mm -hmm. way back. And I mean, they, people were lynched simply by looking up and, and looking at a white woman. Black men were lynched just for doing that yeah. in the South. We're seeing the intersection of patriarchy and racism and also capitalism here. We're seeing it mm. all merging together. Like you made a really good point about, about the, the workers and the naming that we're using. That also plays into the role that slavery had in America. Ah. It was a very powerful economic one. The South was incredibly – those landowners were fabulously wealthy. Ultra, more, ultra wealthy. Yeah, yeah. They stole that wealth from black Americans. They stole it. That whole thing can't be sort of just whitewashed either. Exactly. Right? There's so much to you know confront about the slave period, but we have to also understand that economic conjunction with it as well, because it's still playing out today. You're talking about so uh, the inability of black Americans to be able to accumulate 
generational wealth. Same thing. Mm -hmm. We have to understand that from an economic perspective as well. Yeah. Keeping people down economically is also keeping people powerless. It's all related, right? When we talk about self-actualization, right? This right. is the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But if you are busy trying to just eat or exactly. trying to like literally not yes. get killed, like right, if you were a black man or a black person, right? Black lives didn't matter. We see this all strewn all through history in this massacre, killing a black person. There were no white arrests after that. There was no grand jury. There was no investigation no. into what happened. It was just ignored and people went back along their lives. And so it is really important that we talk about this, that we understand that if people are suffering in that way, they have no time to think about self-actualization and these like highbrow ideas about their place in the world. They're just trying to literally survive day to day. And if you keep people in that state, you can control them. Exactly. And that's still resonating today. When you talk about the resistance against the $15 minimum wage, it's mm -hmm. exactly the same thing. Trying to stop people from getting unemployment benefits is exactly the same thing. It's keeping these people down so you can control them. And they're so con you, constantly you, moving. They're constantly juggling balls, right? Like, because yeah. that's what poverty is. I've spent portions of my life really in just with nothing. And I've done, yeah. I did not, and luckily for not long periods of time. And luckily, I'm very privileged in terms of my education and my upbringing, right? Which helps me pull myself out of those things in a way that some folks don't have, right? But nevertheless, I understand the concept of constantly juggling balls. You're juggling balls so constantly that you can't even stop for a moment to take a breath. Right. Poverty is exhausting. It is fundamentally exhausting. And it's no wonder that folks aren't thinking about heady stuff about like what's happening in Washington. Like, yeah, that just doesn't matter to you when your world is one neighborhood in Baltimore. That right. is your entire world is your right. So, so you're alienated from civic life. You that's don't right. vote. That's you right. don't really have faith. That's in right. the system because the system has been brutalizing you. Right. It, it does, right, you're right. New president. How does your life change? Right. It doesn't. Why should I vote? Right. right. It's not an unreasonable like conclusion to reach under those circumstances, right? But this is why it's so important. And sort of bring us back to our theme, and I want to move on to our next topic. Sure. But I want to sort of just focus on the theme of this, and that is the reason why you get, and this is why the lie in the Tulsa newspaper was so critical to focus on, because that kind of populist lies, rhetoric, all that kind of stuff. And, and and of course, any good populist is really good at this. Trump was good at this. In fact, you know who else is really good at this? Bernie Sanders. But he does the same thing, right? He makes the corporate people into like just caricatures of a human being, right? They're not even people, right? They're like the billionaires are trying to keep you down. And so he's not wrong, obviously, in a lot of ways. And I agree with him. But what I'm trying to get at is that kind of rhetoric and what that rhetoric does. What it does is it intentionally bypasses reason and rationality and goes right for the lizard brain. And that's yeah. why it's effective. That's it's why it's effective. effective, extremely effective. It goes right yeah. to the lizard brain. And that's how you get to pogroms. That's how you get to Tulsa. And that incidentally um, is how you get to the, the next topic. So with our historic context in mind, I want to focus on a more diffuse, but no less problematic version of the same problem. And it's unfolding in 2021 as we speak. And I'm talking about the uh, recent surge in anti-Semitic activity. Let's not pretend yeah. there's a resurgence as if it ever stopped. New York Magazine reports, quote, after an 11-day conflict that left 248 Gazans and 12 Israelis dead, the ceasefire established between Israel and Hamas appears to be holding. Meanwhile, the United States is still dealing with a wave of anti-Semitic violence that appears to be a ripple effect from the Gaza conflict. 
From New York to Los Angeles, there has been an uptick in reports of anti-Semitic attacks in the past two weeks. The Anti-Defamation League said that it received 193 reports of possible anti-Semitic incidents in the week after the Gaza crisis began, up from 131 the previous week. So that's a significant uptick. In one prominent incident in New York, Joseph Borgen, a 29-year-old Jewish man, was attacked and beaten by a group of people near Times Square while heading into a rally. Before I could even act, I was surrounded by a group of people who proceeded to beat me down and then after the fact, pepper spray and maced me. Morgan said in an interview with CNN. An anti-Semitic incident began in Los Angeles when cars draped with Palestinian flags and people using megaphones passed Jewish diners at a sushi restaurant. Individuals in the car started to throw bottles and other objects at the people in the restaurant. About eight people dressed in black approached the diners. The fight grows increasingly violent as it spills farther onto the sidewalk. One man swings a metal stanchion at the attackers, who then push him against a car, punch him, and kick him, the Los Angeles Times reports. End quote. Joe, in your view, is a surge in anti-Semitic violence the result of a few bad apples? Is it a systemic problem in how we talk about violence in Gaza and in Israel or something else? How do you think about this issue? Oh, the bad apples. Uh, <laughs> it is a systemic it is a systemic problem. And it's a systemic problem that goes back 3,500 years, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We are constantly making the mistake of ignoring the, the great momentum of history. We do it with Black Americans. Mm -hmm. We do it with Jewish Americans. We do it with all the time. We do it with Indigenous people. We mm -hmm. do it with women. We're constantly ignoring the power of history, how much energy it still has. It's alive. And the fact that there's been social justice progress and things have gotten better is no excuse to, to say we're done and let up. Because as soon as you do that, that great momentum takes over again. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's true for all people who have been oppressed through time. It's true of the Jewish people as well here. And yes, there's a lot to criticize about the government of Israel's response we also have to be very cognizant of the fact of we're dealing with this great weight of history. Anti-Semitism is roaring to come back. It wants mm -hmm. to come back and it will come back as soon as we let up. And so we cannot use the excuse of being angry about what Israel is doing to let up. And certainly, obviously, we shouldn't participate in any anti-Semitic. <laughs> but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking right, about right. standing up to it. Mm-hmm. And there's always some reasonable, quote unquote, justification for it. You know, you can always rationalize your anger away by saying, you know, with the Tim Scott thing was the same way. You can yeah. rationalize it away. You say, well, look at what he said. Look at what he did. So I have a right to be angry. I have a right to lash out at him. Okay, but what consequences is your lashing out going to have? Mm -hmm. And like you said very well a little while ago, you have to stop and reflect rationally about what energy you're putting out in the world, right? Because it does have consequences. You don't have the right just to lash out. You don't. Okay. Oh God. That's yes. Thank yes. Yes. You're absolutely right. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> yes. This is what I've been saying for a long time. It is definitely part of the theme of this show, which is, it is an astonishing level of arrogance to think that you are entitled to lash out, right? And it, it, it is what we don't do on the left. And it's not that we don't necessarily have those feelings and emotions, right? Like these are like sort of knee-jerk, right? I mean, some of the rhetoric is designed specifically to arouse that feeling, 
right? Like that right. is what populist rhetoric is literally designed to do. It's what it does and it does it well. But it's incumbent upon us, I think, on the left to be willing to look inside and say, holy shit, like, look at me. Look at what I'm about to participate in. Why? Ask those questions. What is it about me that makes me want to do that? And maybe I should take a look at that. I think what you, the point you made too, which is, which is critical, is that, and this applies equally to Tim Scott, right? And that is, no matter what Israel does, at least on, the, on this channel, right? We all agree that like, this is beyond the pale. The Gazans are suffering. This is absurd. This is, we can even call it an apartheid state. We can say a lot of horrible things about it. And I can say a lot of horrible things about Tim Scott, by the way, right? Like I call him a racist, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know that's a crazy thing to call a black guy, but how else do you describe what he does, right? I mean, his policies disproportionately impact not just black people, but all people of color and all marginalized communities. Right. I mean, that makes him a bigot is what that makes him, right? Just, But nevertheless, we got to be willing to rein our shit in, right? And be like, uh, yeah, but let's not cross that line into that world where, where we are leading with our emotions. We are leading with our lizard brain because things right. get really dangerous really fast when we do that. Yeah. And good point. And it is lizard brain. And this is not easy stuff. I mean, I no. have, I understand that people get angry and rightly so. Absolutely. It's justifiable anger because what Tim Scott did, what Israel did, are all resulting in very destructive things for people on, on suffering. So people have a right to be angry. They have a right to stand against it. That's not what we're talking about, right, Christoph? We're not talking no, about that. Of course we're not. talking about measuring how you do it mm-hmm. so that it doesn't have negative consequences in the very thing you're trying to protect. You're doing this because ostensibly, if you're an ally of black Americans and you're white, ostensibly you want to help you want to make sure that racism is is minimized, that we move forward and so forth. But you, if you do that and create racism while you're doing it, what's the point there? I mean, you have to think about what your goal is. And it's not easy because we are, there is a good side to anger too. Anger mm-hmm. motivates, it gets people going, it gets people to do things, to actually have agency in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's not an easy task. No way we're going to say that, but still, the the effort is worth it right trying to do that is what it's all about trying to be a better person and measure be thoughtful think strategically don't just lash out right right and i think it's so important and as you say i think that's a really important point joe is that if our goal really is to help those people, whoever those people are, whether it be Palestinians right. in Gaza or West Bank or whether it be African-Americans, whether it be indigenous people, like we don't help the cause by by lashing out. We really don't. Right. Like that is a, that lashing out is about the lasher outer. That anger yeah. is like, I just want to express my anger. Like that's not helping the cause, because as I said, like with Israelis, any sort of peace in the Middle East. Israel will have to be on board for it. Absolutely. So if you walk <laughs> yeah. around calling them racial slurs, do you really think you're ever going to get Israel on board? So my point is, be strategic, right? Don't run around saying stuff deliberately to piss off Israel and then be like, all right, now Israel come to the bargaining table. Like, well, of course they're not, right? Right. And here's the other thing. You asked me what I thought about it, how I think yeah. about it. And the main thing is I don't see this. I don't see this conflict as a nationalistic conflict. Right. Palestinians versus Israelis. For me, it's it's more about people. And of course, mm-hmm. I understand nation states are still the central organizing principle 
behind geopolitics in the sure. world and there's national. You, you understand this more than anybody, actually. Right. This is, like, this is your thing. Well, I mean, I understand. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but I, understand, I, I studied this in school and I was been thinking about it for a while. But yeah. I understand all that. But still, if we just see things that way in those very sort of harsh terms, we dehumanize. It, yes. And exactly. Then we we can do all the shit we do when we dehumanize, which is nasty stuff, right? It's about people. So the Israelis and the Palestinians are individuals. They are diverse societies. They have differences of opinions. There's children. There's adults. There's soldiers. There's civilians. There's men. There's women. There's it's a population of people. And when, when I criticize, I make sure. I try to, obviously, I don't always succeed, right? <laughs> right Sometimes right, of I, course. I fuck up too. But sure. what I try to do Me is too. I try to look at the actors who are doing these things, right? Mm. And it's the Likud party, right? There's a political strategy you mm -hmm. know, the, from the right in Israel that's been trying to really find ways of circumventing this two-state solution and mm -hmm. take over the whole territory, right? Yeah. That's not what Israelis believe. But right. it is a faction within Israel that has a lot of power that is pursuing this agenda. The settlements are all about that. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a, most of the settlements, I believe, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, are fundamentalist, very religious, yes, and very nationalistic. Mm -hmm. Right, and a lot of Israelis are cosmopolitan. Oh yeah, they're, they're progressive, of course, and they want peace. And of course, when they get scared then the appeals from the right become more powerful to them. Mm -hmm. And they go, okay, yeah, I guess we have to fight back. We need protection, levels, right? We right? need protection. So there's a layer after layer here of humanity that we're dealing with. Yeah. You know, you know, it's, it's, this is so important. First of all, it's so important that we don't minimize the plight of the Gazans and the Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank, right? Like, That's true. Let's That's be true. clear, be like a crystal clear for anyone out there listening, right? That is beyond the pale. I mean, it is, these people are living in an open air prison. There are rampant human rights violations. You're talking about something like 50 or 60% unemployment. I'm probably exaggerating a little bit like, but- No, it's pretty close. But, but I think that's pretty close, right? Yeah. You're talking about absolute despair in a walled city that you need papers to get in and out of. I mean, that's being starved to death, right? So let's be clear about what we're talking about here, but nevertheless, still, and you know what I think is actually effective is to, to, to list all those things because still, we have to look at the folks that we are dealing with in the Israeli government as for who they are. Just like Trumpism and the Trumpists do not represent you and me, Joe. Right. They don't represent you and me, right? right. Uh, like right, the people that are dropping bombs on kids in Afghanistan or wherever the fuck else, right? Like, I mean, I don't push the pickle button on that, on, on that every time, right? Like right. I don't let that bomb fly. I mean, and I vote right? I vote. We do this, like, right? Like we're doing what we can, right? We try to spread. Yeah. You have been an activist since the eighties, right? We are people who care about this stuff, but still, so, but, so we have to recognize that is what we're dealing with in Israel as well. Yeah. I, I, I wonder what you thought about this. I wrote this down because as I was preparing mm -hmm. for the show, I thought about this, but you know, I'm watching The Expanse, right? Yep. And I'm, I'm more or less obsessed with it. Yeah, it's pretty um, awesome. It is just so fucking yeah. good. I mean, just so It's, it's like the best sci-fi. Years, TV. in years. Yeah. I mean, it is, in my mind, next to Star Trek in terms of, it's not in terms of its longevity or its, like, classicness, but in terms of how much I enjoy watching it. Like, mm. it is so good. Anyway, 
there is one moment where a Christian, the uh, woman from Earth, like really just such a kick-ass role, a character, unbelievable. But she says something to the woman, uh, Naomi, and she says, like, if you belters would allow, stop allowing the OPA to speak for you, then maybe we would listen to you. And I'm thinking of Hamas, right? Yeah. Uh, because it's, people say the same thing about Hamas. There's definitely right? it's like, an analogy there. There's an analogy there. And yeah. I, that's the first thing I heard because I mean, yeah. we're, we're deep in the weeds with, this, with Israel and Hamas and Gaza these days because it's just happening. But I was thinking, I was like, no shit. Like, that's exactly the thing, right? Because it's hard to be like, fuck Hamas, because in a lot of ways, because like, look, Hamas is standing up for people who don't have any rights. But at the same time, their voice is not one that's reasonable. And it's the same thing with the OPA, right? So yes. I don't know. I thought that was a... No, that's exactly what good science fiction does, right? Yes. It, it allows us to see the world, but take some of the hot buttons out so we, we mm. don't immediately shut our eyes to it. Right? Yeah. That's a great point you made about Gaza. It is a human travesty what's happening there. And on top of all what you said, it's a very young population. Yes. It has a very high birth rate. I think the average age is under 18. Right, it's a very young population. It's incredibly overcrowded. And where are those people going to go? It's more and more overcrowded. Every year the misery increases. Right? Every year the pressure builds, the anger builds. And they're going to listen to God. They're going to listen to Hamas, mm -hmm. a lot of these young people. Of course they, have they no are. Other, they are they highly educated? Do they have I... other options? They're like you were saying before Christophe, you made the point about poverty, the juggling the balls, right? Yeah. What do you expect? Exactly. Right? exactly. What the of course. fuck do you expect? Of happen? course, they that's what's going to happen. They're going to go to a terrible organization like Hamas because Hamas at least is offering them some hope. Exactly. Right? And, uh, and, that's, and, and that's not mince words about Hamas. I mean, they're a theocratic, violent group. Right? Yeah. They're terrible. I'm they're not going to put up that poster on my wall. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Right <laughs> These are not guys you want to hang around with. Like, they're definitely not. <laughs> Israel's got to face the fact they cannot have a military solution to this problem. Right. They cannot have a wall solution to this problem. They created this high-tech, supergiant mega wall that's incredibly effective. I mean, they did like shoot down like 90 to 95% of yeah. missiles. And stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Militarily, they're number one. They're incredibly good, but it's not going to be enough. No, it's not. Right. No, they're going to have a humane, civil, peaceful solution to this for their own sake, as well yep. as the Gazans, as well as the Palestinians. They have to. What are you going to do otherwise? What are you going to do? Year, there's exactly. more and more. Gaza is a tiny strip of land. Yeah. It, and it mirrors the rise of right-wing rhetoric and right-wing uh, politicians all over the world, it right? Does. It's happening in the United States, the UK, Turkey, blah, 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 and on and on and on. This is a problem that we are all facing. I mean, we can point to perhaps neoliberalism. We can point to a lot of different things. Uh, right. But the bottom line is that this is where we are. I mean, it's a travesty what's happening in Gaza, but also given who's running Israel, not terribly surprising, right? Like, I mean, there's been a right, the equivalent of a competent Trump you know, running the state. So of course that's what's going to happen, you know? Yeah. Although I will say, I always find this really interesting, is that not only is abortion legal in Israel, it is free. It's and it's free. just like, it's just like, yeah. wow, even their right-wingness isn't that right-wing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there are different flavors of right-wing, right? That's a great point. That's just not what they care about, but they're right-wing about other shit. But, you know, like, you could go back to your point mm -hmm. about self-control and awareness mm -hmm. and self-actualization. Mm -hmm. Yep. The other thing that we have to think about here is what stands in the way of that is trauma. Mm -hmm. 
people who are experienced trauma. And I want to make a little bit of an analogy here. And I hate to do make analogy sometimes because <laughs> whenever you make an analogy, you're going to make a mistake. It's, right. They're never you're, perfect. You're going to say something wrong. But yeah. <laughs> just as a tool of understanding, right. a woman who experiences, let's say, gang rape, brutal gang rape and survives mm -hmm. it, she's going to have psychic trauma from that for the rest of her life. Yep. And she may be able to come to terms with it and have come to a healthy place with it eventually. And hopefully she does, but that trauma is going to be a part of her identity. The same thing with, uh, let's say, a, a black man in the antebellum period mm -hmm. gets lynched, but doesn't die, survives it. Horrible, horrible thing happens. He's going to live with that trauma for the rest of his life. It is the brutality of those events are so horrific that they, they're going to impact on that person. And the yeah. same thing happened to whole people like with the Israelis, you know, that the impact of the Holocaust mm -hmm. is a living impact. It's still affecting Israel and Jews around the world. It is a powerful traumatic event. Someone literally tried to wipe out all Jews from the face of the earth and managed to kill several million in doing so. I mean, imagine that. Just, and it, it, and it, that's it, it, not, obviously that's just the icing on the cake of 2000 years of this mm -hmm. pogroms and yep. the Inquisition and, yep. over, and that is going to traumatize people. So is it a wonder again, like it's not a surprise that the Palestinians are reacting the way they are. It's mm -hmm. not a surprise to me that the Israelis are reacting the way they are. Me neither. Being so militant and so paranoid about it. Right. I, I, I think that's just part of the human equation. And so we've got to respect those realities for both these right. populations and not just simply lash out and condemn either side. That's right. But just try to see this as a human tragedy and hopefully one that can be some someday resolved. I mean, it's been going on for 75 years, right? I mean, my More entire life, obviously, like 46, six, yeah, basically since World War II, right? This is what's been happening there. You talk about the intergenerational trauma of a people let alone individuals, but as a people, right? And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that the black community has the same problem, the same Absolutely. sorts of yes. trauma and yes. that it manifests. And I think that folks can find it hard to wrap a mind around, say, like why I might react to racism or react to these sort of things so passionately or so intensely. But again, it's trauma. I mean, it's like, I've heard this analogy before, and that is if you fall and you bruise your arm, it's like if somebody punches you in that place, it's right. not like you're starting from scratch. You, you're starting with a bruise. So it hurts even more than it would hurt if you were being punched normally. And the thing about punching somebody is that like, if it'd be, presumably I would be prepared for that. A lot of times when it comes to racism, it is completely out of left field, right? Like it's like, oh shit, he said that, right? Like, so that is, so it's also this shock experience, right? So, but to get back to your point is yes, these traumas, I think, absolutely affect how Israelis and the Jewish diaspora, right? How right. they think about themselves in relationship to the folks around them, in relationship to, I know what it's like to feel, to walk around always concerned that just waiting for somebody to say something bigoted, right? Like that yeah. takes a psychological toll, right? So yeah. all of these things help us. And this is, I think, your point, And I think it's a really good point, And it's definitely part of the theme of the show is that we have to try to understand these are people. Why are they behaving that way? Even if our goal, and I'm not saying this is true with Israel, but even if our goal is to literally defeat somebody, 
right? Let's say we're talking about white supremacists, right? Like yeah. our goal is to literally defeat them. We're not trying to like make nice with them. We're trying to, we want to ideally in an ideal world, this won't happen, but ideally want to eradicate those ideas from society. But we cannot do that if we don't understand how a white supremacist thinks. We cannot do that. Like, so even the best commander on the battlefield, right? Their entire job is to understand how the enemy thinks. You right. cannot win a war. You cannot fight a fight if you pretend that the other people are just some caricature of who they are. America famously right. did that in Vietnam and yep. lost. That's lost. what happens when you try to do that. That's what happens when you don't understand the context and you don't put yourself in their shoes. And so that's really important. And I think um, that's a good segue, I think, to talk about how do we do this on an individual level, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're talking about this on the size of peoples and nation states, et cetera. Um, so I want to talk about self-control and self-discipline and the extent to which that should play a role in a well-ordered uh, individual. So I want to take everybody on a little bit of a sojourn through my history. I spent the formative years um, of my life in a very strict and very authoritarian environment. And in that myopic world, the world in which my mind developed, ideas about what constituted right and wrong were strictly codified and violations were strictly enforced, typically to the tune of a belt. I ingested a whole lot of illegal substances during the ensuing years, especially as a teenager and young adult, to drown out the hypercritical voices that my upbringing installed in my mind. And ironically, Alcoholics Anonymous, the solution that I was forced into later, uh, it was a solution that was proffered by every rehabilitation center and every New Jersey Superior Court judge. The problem was that it fed into the worst possible narrative for a guy like me, the narrative that, quote, there's something inherently wrong with you, right? You are broken. You are an alcoholic. You are X, Y, and Z. And that kind of thing led me in precisely the wrong direction. And it made for uh, a real dark ages during my mm -hmm. journey towards some semblance of self-actualization. Um, I want to give you an opportunity, Joe, to talk a little bit about your upbringing and background and, and, and how you got to the place where you're like, we're having this conversation. Oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. I think having that, again, we're talking about trauma, you're talking about personal trauma in your mm. life, having that dark age, I think is a very common human experience mm. self actualization. I'm not going to say it's always the case. Sure. But I think it's it, it really does sometimes the hard knocks are necessary, mm. you know, uh, to, to help you develop empathy to help you develop understanding, help you develop patience, it really does give you that opportunity not everyone takes that opportunity sure but it gives you the opportunity to grow as a person this is not to say we want to celebrate that <laughs> right right but yeah, i see your point though it's a good one yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in religious terms they call it the dark night of the soul right mm -hmm. it's kind of mm -hmm. the same thing mm -hmm. um, it, and also like a, in the hero's journey right the hero's, this is journey, the hero's yes. journey right right mm -hmm. joseph campbell right mm -hmm. oh, yeah mm -hmm. so <laughs> I had a different experience in my life in some ways. I, mm. I grew up in, I, I would consider a, a loving environment. Uh, my mother was religious, but she didn't impose it on us very much. She wasn't really into like forcing us to be religious too. And my father was pretty much an atheist, pretty intellectual guy, atheistic. Um, I did see him in church a few times and my mother's insistent, right, for, for special occasions. <laughs> sure, and sure. He always had this smirk on his face, <laughs> like looking around with disdain, you know. <laughs> you know, when it was time to kneel in Catholic Church, and he, sure. just, he would just sit there. And just proudly, like, I'm not going to kneel. Right? Not gonna kneel. And I was like, and I'd be like a little boy, I'd be like, oh, 
you know, wow. Yeah, really yeah, yeah. Fascinated by that and also kind of proud of him mm. at the time. I remember feeling both like he, I felt both like embarrassed and proud at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did have a lot of hardship in terms of my health. I, mm. I was very sickly. I had some serious uh, issues. I almost died a few times in my, mm. in my life. I was hospitalized for several months at a time when I was nine, eight or eight or nine. Uh, I had one of those, uh, they didn't know what it was. And eventually they, they diagnosed it about a year after as a one of those flesh-eating bacteria oh, no that's mm. what it was and they had no clue what it was wow at the time i couldn't speak english mm. and so they would they would you know they would do these procedures on me and i didn't know what was going to happen I, one day i think that they were going to cut my leg off and i couldn't even express that yeah so it was pretty traumatic right. in and then I also, you know, got pretty brutalized as an immigrant kid in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. We lived in a kind of, you know, poor neighborhood. It was a tenement, people on welfare, exclusively white, except for like, I think there was one family that was of color. And it was a pretty brutal place. And so here I was, the newbie, right? The, the, the exotic one, and they just mm -hmm. let me have it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I learned to fight. I'll and bet. use my anger, <laughs> right? So yeah. again, I only bring that up because there is a value to anger and there's a value to confrontation and fighting. Sometimes nothing else will work. Agreed. In fact, if you cower and if you placate that, they've done studies on this, psychological studies that show that people will just be more aggressive towards mm -hmm. you. If you go like this, when someone's punching you, you'll get punched more. Right. Right. They, they've literally done, I've seen studies that show that. Sure. So there are times that you have to be uh, confrontational and aggressive. And sometimes the only way you can do that is to dehumanize someone. It's true. That's it's very true. Person, right. And that's what a lot, I think a lot of progressives do. And I think, but sometimes to a fault, right? But if you do it too much, then you, you get into all the issues that you were talking about a little while ago, Christoph, mm -hmm. where you, you're just, you're lashing out, you're not thinking about, the consequences, you, you're saying things that are ultimately going to be harmful to your cause. Right. And so again, it's not an easy balance there, no. but we have to try to balance it. That's yeah. the important thing. I thought that's so important, Joe. And I think, yeah. right, I think that is a huge part of realizing that, right, and embracing that challenge and realizing that the answer isn't obvious. Yeah. And a lot of situations, the answer isn't obvious, right? So it takes work, right? And But I really think, Joe, that this is the real work of anti-racism, right? Mm -hmm. Like yelling and screaming and being like, and I'm not saying that being in the streets isn't, right? I'm not saying that buying from Black-owned businesses isn't. But the real work, the individual work happens inside. And that is being prepared to, first of all, shut up and listen to black people or to mm -hmm. gay people or to women or whatever, and to listen and let them lead. I think that's really important. Let them lead the conversation. By the way, who gets to call what is racist and what is not, or what is sexist and what is not, right, is the person who's affected by that. But even more granular than that is being willing to have those hard conversations with oneself and figure out that balance. And I don't think, you know, I've been learning how to ride an adventure motorcycle and off-road. And the whole thing is like, is, and they say flying a helicopter is like this too. You are basically always on the verge of crashing, right? right? So it is like you are holding the clutch, the throttle, 
the brake, yeah. the rear brake, the front brake, all in this delicate dance to keep the bike right where you want it to go at the right revs for this terrain, real self-actualization, right? Real becoming real anti-racism is that it's not oh. just cracking the throttle open right oh, so it's right. not slamming on the brakes otherwise you can anyone can ride a motorcycle in a straight line yeah. but can you curve it around can you do it slow can you do it deliberately can you do it thoughtfully that's the difference joe that's the difference right. that's the real anti-racism yeah. not just screaming and yelling it's real anti-racism so I have to take back what I said about analogies. I think you just made a perfect, beautiful <laughs> analogy. No flaws whatsoever. You get 100% uh, on that one. If anybody out there thinks the, the, it's a flawed analogy, please leave it in the comments. I'd love oh, to that hear was why. That was really, actually very thoughtful. Thank <laughs> you for that. that. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. That's exactly what it is. It, it, we are in a control fall when we're dealing with this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes we, we are just on the verge of just losing it emotionally. Exactly. And acting out, lashing out. We're on the verge of cowering and being right and just stepping back and being passive. And, being and we, have to, we have to walk that line, mm -hmm. right? Stay on that, on that trail as the, if things go rushing by and having, man, that takes effort and it takes ex work and it takes dedication. Experience. Experience. Yeah. And it takes fucking up. It does. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, I was joking about this yesterday. There's a friend of mine, Almir, who is, uh, he just got back from a long motorcycle ride up to Maine and he had a scratch on his tank that he somehow got probably from a tank bag. And it was his first scratch on a brand new motorcycle. So I, you know, I was empathizing with him like that, that sucks. But then I was joking too. I was like, you want me to take a picture of my motorcycle? <laughs> Yeah. I've had it for like four months. It's been on its side probably like 25 times. But my point is like, well, that's because I'm trying something, yeah. right? Like I'm trying to find that balance. And if you're trying to find that balance, you are guaranteed to fuck up. If you're really trying, you're probably going to fuck up. You're going to cower when you shouldn't cower maybe, yes. right? You're going to fight when you shouldn't fight. And you will learn from that experience. But all of this is about being thoughtful. And this is like really grabs the theme of the show, right? Right. Thoughtfulness. And you cannot walk that line if you're not going to do it thoughtfully. Right. So I think that's really important. And I brought up my background because my initial reaction was to come out of that background and like swing over to like hedonism. Right. With like, with like, mm -hmm. like, like more of a hedonistic world, not like literally because I wouldn't have put it in those terms, but basically the idea that like, yeah, well, it feels good. It's what I want to do. It's not going to hurt other people. I think I could predict, which that's hard to predict, but like, yeah. but it's not gonna hurt me. So I'm gonna do it. And that worldview, I found it to, I, I was reading about this. I'm not gonna go ahead and read the whole quote now, but, or maybe I will, maybe it won't take too long. Maybe I'll just read it. Go for it. I'm just gonna read it. Fuck it. Okay. <clears throat> quote, ethical hedonism or normative hedonism is the thesis that considerations of increasing pleasure and decreasing pain determine what we should do or which action is right. In the narrow sense, ethical hedonism is a form of consequentialism, which we like here on the channel, since it determines the rightness of an action based on its consequences, which are measured here in terms of pleasure and pain. As such, it is subject to the main arguments in favor and against consequentialism. On the positive side, these include the intuition that consequences of our actions matter and that through them, we ought to make the world a better place. On the negative side, consequentialism would entail that we rarely, if ever, know right from wrong since our knowledge of the future is rather limited and the consequences of even the simplest actions may be quite vast. So Joe, in your uh, sort of estimation, is there real value to hedonistic ethics? How do you think about that? I think it's great to, to 
tackle these philosophical questions. Mm-hmm. I think I'm glad we're doing it. I, I try to do it from a sort of more of a down to earth approach. Mm-hmm. I think it's wonderful to philosophy has a lot to offer us. I, and in, in terms of hedonism, I would say that we're all hedonistic in the true sense of the word. We really are. We all seek pleasure and avoid pain. That's what it means to be human. Boom. And I mean, all, most people are, are ethical hedonists, not all, but most people, I think they have some ability because we all have some ability to be empathetic, right? And of course, some are only empathic to their in-group, right? Mm-hmm. And they're very tribal in that way. And this is where you get a lot of the problems in the world that we've talked about in this show so much. Well, others, hopefully we do, try to express this universally, right? Have empathy for humankind and nature and, and so forth. The downside to hedonism is that we often spend a lot of time worrying about what's going to make us happy and mm. what's going to cause us pain. That's kind of a Buddhist thing, right? Much of the suffering, a Buddhist would say, comes from this angst, this constant worrying, right? This, this mental gymnastics that we do about how to find pleasure and to avoid pain. And I think there's a lot to that, although I think there's a lot to critique about Buddhism as well. But I think there's a lot to that. I know that I do this. I, I spent a lot of time coming up with scenarios in my head and that will never, ever happen. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. And, then they, and, 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 and they're not nice. They don't make me feel good. <laughs> so why do it? Right? That's the whole thing, right? <laughs> and of course, the answer in Buddhism and a lot of, and also in mindfulness, especially, is to be focused in the present moment, to be mindful sure. of the present moment. And we've talked about this in the show before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and if we do that, then we don't go through all these scenarios. We don't dwell on other things. It helps us just ground ourselves so that we, our mind doesn't spin off and causes misery. Because, you know, dwelling on stuff sucks. <laughs> yeah, it really does. I mean, and it is a huge problem, right? It, it is for whatever, maybe it's an evolutionary accident, but or maybe there are evolutionary reasons. But the bottom line is we human beings ruminate and we developed anxiety as a result of that. And look, our brain flashes from one issue to another. I mean, that's just the nature of our brain. And normally it doesn't matter so much, except for, like you say, when it becomes pathological, you can't stop, right? That's this problem that I've had in the years. I mean, that's what depression in my mind really is, right? Like it's basically unable to get out of that loop of thinking, right? And break free from that loop. And so for me, I think that being able to reflect long enough to realize that that's what's happening, that I'm in the, in a loop, or right. for, the, for the purposes of this show and our theme today, being like, holy shit, there's my lizard brain, right? right? There's my lizard brain kicking on right now, right? And being aware that like my brain has swapped logical, rational, like the brain up here. And it is like allowing like a hybrid vehicle, like, you know, goes from engine to battery. Right. It's like it flips back a bit, a little bit back into that sort of into that lizard brain. And like, I think there's real value in being able to be aware of when one is in that state. It's an interesting kind of segue, actually, and into the Stoics, right? Um, yeah. And because, right, and I'll just read a little bit about the Stoics now. I'll clarify from the outset, though, that I don't think the Stoics or any other Bronze Age philosopher, for that matter, got it all right. Stoics in particular were really into stuff like fasting, not drinking, and not having sex. And that sort of aestheticism is more than not useful to the project of self-actualization, in my view. It's actively harmful to that project. 
project, or at least possibly so. I'm not saying it could be never be useful, but I'm not interested in that. Still, I do think the Stoics have some good ideas. I'll go ahead and describe some of them now. Ancient Stoics are often misunderstood because the terms they use pertain to different concepts than today. The word Stoic has since come to mean unemotional or indifferent to pain because Stoic ethics taught freedom from passion by following reason. In reality, the Stoics did not seek to extinguish emotions. Rather, they sought to transform them in a way that enables a person to develop clear judgment and inner calm. Logic, reflection, and focus were methods of such self-discipline. The foundation of Stoic ethics is that good lies in wisdom and self-control. The idea was to be free of suffering through peace of mind, where peace of mind was understood in the ancient sense as being objective or having clear judgment and the maintenance of equanimity in the face of life's highs and lows. Mm -hmm. Joe, I mean, I kind of feel like that is, I mean, like you said, say what you want about stoicism and stoics, but I mean, that seems like a lot of good shit there, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just want to go back to one, th one thing you said yeah, in yeah, the last yeah. segment about hedonism, I thought was really useful mm -hmm. about our lizard brain. Now, when we ruminate, what's literally happening mm -hmm. is that our lizard brains are taking over um, mm. higher functions. <laughs> you can have an experience where you're just pure emotion, right? Fear. You're not thinking about sure. anything. That's pure lizard brain. But what we're talking about here is this is merger between like the sort of the higher functioning brain and the more primitive brain in these ruminations, because it's about fear, right? It's mm. about these emotions. Great point. And, and the stoicism comes in because it's about being aware of that, like you said, absolutely right. Being aware of it is like the, the biggest thing you can do. It's the first step, but it's also probably the biggest step that you can take. You're aware of it and you say, oh, this is what my mind's doing again. Mm -hmm. right? I'm, I am lost here. I've lost my power yes. as, a con as a conscious being because I'm not no longer dictating my mind. <laughs> Something That's else is so my true. Are. So yeah. well said. Yeah. And so you just bring it back. That's what you do. Now, stoicism, I think, we have to distinguish is it between like the common word usage yes. of Stoic, yes, which is, yes, yes, yes. you know, from the philosophy. The common conception developing is almost like a stereotype mm. to the philosophy, a kind of uh, kind of like a dig. Who wants to be logical and virtuous all the time, right? That's a drag. I don't so, know. I like Mr. Spock, but yeah. what, 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 what do I know? Well, yeah, but, you know. We're not probably typical. No, I know what you mean. I'm just fucking around. <laughs> and I honestly have to say, sometimes being illogical is a drag too. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it is a drag. I think it is a drag. I mean, you're like, right. you're we're, right. we're, we're emotional people. We should be. We are, right. And so stoicism got a bad rap because it's it's a way of, of just basically just rejecting us for the philosophy. I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Look at those guys. They're idiots, right? Mm -hmm. It's Stoics. Mm -hmm. Why do they do that? But there are some legitimate cr critiques to Stoicism. I like Stoicism. I, I think it's kind of cool, but there are some critiques. For sure. It's theological, for one. Mm -hmm. And that's always a little bit of a red flag for me. Me too. Uh, it, it, theological in the sense that it has an end goal and a point of evolutionary achievement where, where all of a sudden you're there and you're done. You're a sage, right? right? Like and, Buddhist enlightenment, right? right? The concept right. is the of, same. Yeah. There's kind of a religious quality to that in some yes, ways, right? exactly. I reject that like, uh, goodbye. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't know if that ever happens. I mean, <laughs> I don't think there are like perfectly 100% actualized people in the world right now walking around. I don't think so either. There are some that maybe are really close, but... <laughs> like better than me, but doesn't right, mean perfect, right? right? You know, or anything and the funny thing is, one of the things that, I, you know, 
I started really looking into enlightenment when I was younger, my mm -hmm. 30s and 40s. And I started looking, delving really into like people that are trying to get enlightened and talked about it. And, they, and you had the people like, uh, what's his name we talked about last? Sam Harris? Sam Harris of yeah. enlightenment, right? Enlightenment. Right, right, right. But you right. have a lot of people who are like, <laughs> just laugh at that. They're like, <laughs> people think I'm enlightened, but I'm not enlightened. Right. right, so right. It's like, I'm a human being. And these great masters sometimes are the ones that just like make the most fun of it. Right, right, you know, right. We're yeah. all human. And I guess it's a great goal to achieve for, but again, theological ends, I don't think just makes sense. I don't think, I don't think it makes sense with nature, natural processes. Mm. Things always are unfolding all the time, right? Sure. And so there's this living, what I like about it is this kind of trying to live in harmony with nature, mm -hmm. our own nature, which we're talking about in this show, right? Sure. Our own exactly. mental processes and how they can kidnap us and, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing, right? Being aware of it. But Again, the perfect state thing is a little bit problematic for me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the ancient Greeks loved perfection. They loved to ponder on perfect, perfect essences and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. So th there's a lot of that in there. And so I would say that hedonism is like an earlier primitive stage where organism identifies with its basic needs, right? And it's a set of recognitions of, of particularly one's needs of the body right? Pleasure, food, sex, sleep, sunshine, uh, those kinds of things. And the next step is identifying with the mind a bit more through reason. And that's mm -hmm. where stoicism can come in, in, sure. in that sense. Uh, it can lead to self-understanding, it can lead to understanding of, of nature and, and, and society and that kind of thing. But what one does with that understanding is also important. Let's not forget that, right? So there's this whole other sort of aspect of religion and philosophy that's like, okay, so you achieve sexual self as a sexualization, right? Self-actualization. <laughs> you see, you achieve this state and then what do you do? Right. Go into bliss and leave the world behind you? <laughs> right, that's right. very nice. Right? <laughs> so what do you do with it? What do you do with this wonderful knowledge about yourself? Right. And I think that's what being activists, being social justice advocates is what we're trying to get at. We're sure. trying to get, how, do we, how can we do that better? And to your point earlier, Christoph, about not lashing out uh, with the Tim Scott thing, this is exactly what we're talking about. How mm -hmm. do we not do that? Right. How can we stay in control of our own emotions so we have agency over our own actions. That's what conscious really means at the higher level, I think. For sure. We're not acting on impulse or instinct or mm -hmm. programming that we're aware of what we're doing. That's right. right. That's right. Do things deliberately, right? Deliberately. Deliberately, yeah. not reactively, right? And and we're going to be sad. We're going to be happy. We're going to be passionate. Of course, we just talked about this. The fact that we're even sitting here having this conversation demonstrates two pretty passionate people, right? Like yep. we're taking time out of our days. We're both busy guys, right? Uh, Sean, for Christ's sake, he does a lot, all the production work as yep. well. So we take time out of our days to put these things together. We are passionate people, but at the same time, we ought to be doing this thoughtfully. And here's the big thing about, I thought this was really profound. We talked about earlier, it should be about service, mm. right? This isn't about me, right? This isn't about me expressing myself. That's important too, for sure. And I should express myself and however I want to do that in a way that doesn't harm other people. But that's not what we're doing here. We're not here to express ourselves. We're here to serve the cause of justice. That's what yeah. we're here. And so we need to think really carefully about how what we say and what we do moves the ball closer to that 
goal. Otherwise, we're, we're just a bunch of teenagers acting out, right? Well like we're, we're just a bunch of punk rockers being like, ah, I hate the system, but not doing anything about it, right? So really mature, I think mature activism has to be deliberate, strategic, focused. This is what I call myself an Obama Democrat. I think yeah. that he got it right, he did, right? He is sense. an activist. He is thoughtful and cerebral. But by the way, and this goes back to your point earlier, he carries a stick. He yeah. will bomb you, right? He's not Jimmy Carter. He will bomb you, right? Like he will, right? And I think there's valid criticism that he's not tough enough. I think that's very valid criticism. And that also goes to your point about the more you cowl like that, the more they beat up on you. And I think that he certainly in the first four years took a beating as a result of that. I think he came back with fire and in 12 and basically since then. I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. And again, to go back to this point about the self, right? Mm -hmm. We're, we talk about hyper-individualism. We talk about Ayn Rand. We talk about the right and libertarians. Right. But it's infiltrated everyone. It's infiltrated mm -hmm. the left. It's infiltrated everyone. And it's, it's certainly infiltrated the New Age self-actualization movement. For right? sure. Oh, my God. And we, and we have to be aware of that. You don't have the right to harm other people. Right. You just don't. You just you think, don't. People will say, it's just, it's my truth, so I can say it. Right, right. I'm just right, expressing right. myself. Yes, but you're, there's consequences to your right. bad expression. Right. You don't get a free pass if you're hurting someone else. You don't. You don't. Okay, you wake don't. up. You just don't. You just don't. Like, that is unacceptable. And there's For a lot of that. There's a ton of that. And like you said, I think this stuff infiltrates into the left and, and, and it infiltrates the left because we also are human beings, it turns out. Right. And yeah. interestingly, that goes back to the importance of not dehumanizing your opponent. Right. Because then like you make miscalculations when you dehumanize your opponent. Right. When you dehumanize your opponent. And it doesn't mean we say that, like, we give them a pass. I think of myself as famous for saying we're in a knife fight in a fucking phone booth. And that's not wrong. Yeah. Right. But it doesn't mean that I'm going to pretend that person in the phone booth isn't who they are. Right. That person cares about that issue as much as I do. They also have a wife, a family, you know, whatever. I mean, and it, and it doesn't mean that I shouldn't knife them in that phone booth, given what we're talking about right now. But it does mean that I should be thoughtful about that. It's a weird thing to say, being thoughtful about knifing somebody in the phone booth. In a phone <laughs> <Yes>. booth. <laughs> but no, you're right. I mean, be, because sometimes the result of that thoughtfulness is yes, I should knife someone. Exactly. Right? exactly. And that's an appropriate thing. To <laughs> that's do. an appropriate there are outcome. times when you have to resort to violence. Right. That's right? absolutely. I'm right. not a pacifist. Me but I just think Me I neither. just think you have to not go there right away. You have to right. deliberate yourself there. You have to get there, do everything you can before you act that way. Right. But there are situations where in self-defense or, or whatnot, or in terms protect of like others. political activism, mm -hmm. if, if there's Nazis coming at you, you got to protect yourself. Right? There, there are times when people who are with rage actually has a positive value. Yeah. But it it's exists rare. for a reason. It yeah. exists for a reason as part yeah. of us, right? It is evolutionarily advantageous in, in certain circumstances. I mean, oftentimes it gets misused, but it is not useless and it enables us to stand up to things, ideas, people, perhaps that we wouldn't otherwise. Right. So there's a reason why lizard brain isn't gone, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, it's there for a reason. It's still there for a reason. Um, well, look, we are getting to the end of our time, Joe. Do you have any final thoughts? 
Uh, thanks, Christoph. I just want to revisit the issue of anti-Semitism mm -hmm. in the context of what we were talking about, the philosophy of self-control and self-discipline. And how should we approach life in those terms? Let's say we're, we're approaching having to take a stand or do something about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. How do we balance the emotional and the rational where the rubber meets the ground, right? Mm -hmm. In actuality, not just theoretically. So we can look at this dispassionately, and maybe we should, but, you know, I tend to be the guy that pulls the lever, you know, in the, in the trolley, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which will cause too. the least harm. And you've mentioned this about consequentialism, right? Before I can do that, I need to be honest with myself. What are the consequences? Mm -hmm. Do I really know them, right? If I pull the lever, am I fooling myself into thinking I'm going to be saving two people? Or is it, am I really going to be saving two people? I doubt that I'll absolutely ever know for sure in real life. Uh, life isn't so simple. So we never have all the information. We still have to act, right? And there's also, there's many contradictions. There's a lot of ethics that contradict and conflict with each other. Which one do we prioritize, right? As a Palestinian or a supporter of Palestinians, how can you talk about doing research and being dispassionate when there's so much suffering going on? As mm. you said earlier, Christoph, when bombs are falling on children, when millions of people are forced to live in, in confinement in a tiny strip of land with appalling social conditions, how can you talk about history and historical wrongs about the Jewish people when their conditions are there are so dire? I mean, isn't the slaughter of children what we should be fighting against and forget everything else? If you're a Jewish supporter mm. uh, or an Israeli, how can you not see the persecutions that the Jews have gone through through the millennia? I mean, it's just been one after another. It defines their human history. How can you not see the need for Israel to defend itself when it's surrounded by hostile states? How can you not see the persecution? Uh, how can you not see that, you know, what happened in the Holocaust and how the Jews were expelled from their homeland twice and, and, that, and the last one being the diaspora? All of these things, right? Can you not see the existential importance to have an Israeli state in the nation state world? The stateless people are pretty much fucked in a, in a nation state organized world, right? Mm. You see that of the Kurds, for example. Mm -hmm. So how do we balance this? And it, we have to, again, go back to all the things that we've talked about, some of the things that you said about self-reflection. I don't have an answer. I don't know what's right or wrong here because it's just, there's too much to it. Trying to understand our own feelings is the best place to start about this issue. How, what's coloring my feelings, my emotions? What's coloring my rage about it, mm -hmm. right? Am I being influenced by groupthink? Would I be mm -hmm. differently if I was in a different group? Am I going to change my, what I say depending on who I'm talking to, right? So where does the clarity come in? Uh, when, and that if I want to act, if I want to have agency in the world, when can I be confident that it's the right time and the right way to act? And you can start by just going back and thinking about self-reflection and self-actualization, because it's not just about me. You know, in, in the New Age movement, it's, it's very egotistical, mm -hmm. right? so self-actualization, mm -hmm. self-enlightenment, all of this stuff. But for most of us who are really in the business of want, trying to make this world a better place, it's about service to others. It's, a, it's about being a good person, right? And this is how you can be a good person, by self-examination before you act in the world. And so I'm going to take what's happening with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I'm going to take the time to reflect on it and not act out 
And I'm going to try to think about it as best I can and talk to people and learn and especially talk to those who are directly influenced by this, mm-hmm. right? And then also, because we are rational beings, we need to look at the history. We need to look at the processes of the world, like colonialism and nationalism, that really powerfully impact what's happening in this issue today. And you have to weigh all those things. And I want to remind people that in our discussion today, it wasn't simply theoretical. It's not a matter of thinking about philosophy in these lofty terms. It's about the more we learn about ourselves, the better people we can be and the, and the better we can be for the world. So that's how I want to end it for me. That was, that was so great, Joe. And I, I'm so glad that we were able to do this. Of course, we miss, we miss Sean, but I'm really yeah. glad that you and I had the opportunity to talk about this stuff and really get into the weeds about the ideas behind self-actualization, um, getting a little geeky perhaps about the philosophy, but also I hope having a fun time and uh, doing something entertaining for everyone. So, um, so look, if, if you're out there and you like our show, Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out theradicalsecular.com and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post on Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And if you're into reading, check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Christoph Defo. Thank you for being here. And remember that wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.